This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, February 14th. It's Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day, and I'm your host, Rob Bluey. In the early morning hours of Tuesday, a group of conservative senators ran out of procedural options for debating a $95 billion funding bill for Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific. At that point, the tandem of Senate leaders Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell moved swiftly to pass the bill on a vote of 70 to 29. That included 22 Republicans who voted for foreign aid without addressing our own U.S. border crisis. The measure now moves on to the House of Representatives, where Speaker Mike Johnson has pledged to hold the line at the urging of conservatives. On today's show, I asked national security expert Bridge Colby of the Marathon Initiative to explain what's playing out on Capitol Hill and why he thinks this legislation misses the mark. We also talk about how the United States should be prioritizing its national security. Stay tuned for our interview right after this. We're all guilty of it, spending too much time on the Internet watching silly videos. But it's the 21st century, and maybe it's time for a change. At the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, you'll find videos that both entertain and educate, including virtual events featuring the biggest names in American politics, original explainers and documentaries, and heritage experts diving deep on topics like election integrity, China, and other threats to our democracy. All brought to you by the nation's most broadly supported Public Policy Research Institute. Start watching now at heritage.org slash YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. Bridge Colby is a principal and co-founder of the Marathon Initiative, and he's our guest today to talk about some of the pressing national security issues that our country is facing. Bridge, thanks for being a guest on the Daily Signal podcast. Great to be here. Let's start by talking about the current debate that's taking place in Congress, and then I want to zoom out and talk more broadly about uh, what our our priorities should be. But we have a, a package called the Supplemental that is working its way through the U.S. Senate, and we have no idea if this will ultimately make it to President Biden's desk. Of course, he's advocating advocating for it pretty aggressively. Uh, But it includes $60 billion of aid and funding for Ukraine, which is dividing a lot of people on the right and in the Republican Party. Uh, Can you tell us your perspective on the supplemental, whether you think it's good, bad, or maybe the wrong approach for uh, our country to take right now? Sure. Well, thanks. And and, and great to be with you. Look, I think one thing it's important to realize, obviously, this is the bill that's come up at this at this point. But I think there's a sort of way of looking at it that's more strategic and a bigger picture. You know, couple things. My basic approach to foreign policy, you could say, is to put Americans' interests first, right? Which is to say, I don't think that means isolationism, but I think that means our enlightened self-interest. And I think Americans are increasingly and with very good reason worried about issues like the rising debt, uh, the border, uh, the failed wars and military interventions that we've been, you know, in. And and Kevin Roberts, your your fantastic president, has been talking about that very eloquently and compellingly for a number of years. But I think, look, that's that's a thing. My view is what we should be doing is having a foreign policy that concretely puts Americans' interests first. And again, I think it's important to have alliances and to have an international view. If we look at the, the world in that perspective, we say, what's the biggest threat to Americans' interests? It's the People's Republic of China because it's 10 times the GDP of Russia. And Asia, where China is located, obviously, is by far more important. It's going to be almost half of global GDP. We can't allow China to dominate Asia. And ostensibly, that is not only the Trump administration position, I think, basically, but also the Biden administration's position. So my view is when I look at the supplemental, it's totally out of whack. We're sending $61 billion to Ukraine and we're spending a couple billion extra on the Indo-Pacific when 
very the heritage has said this very respected institutions like heritage the rand corporation has also assessed that we're behind militarily and otherwise so we should be focusing on china at the same time i personally do think that you know russia remains a threat i think russia's invasion of ukraine is an evil act you know obviously there's a lot of nuance there but that's fundamentally the reality and so i support supporting the ukrainians but we live in the world of reality just like a you know a family making its financial planning or business making its financial planning we can't solve all the world's problems and we have big ones ourselves and the biggest one in the international system is china okay what do we do about that well I think first and foremost, we move our foreign policy alliance structure from a dependency sort of structure to a partnership structure where we expect our allies to really not just say it, but actually do step up and meet their obligations. And this is something President Trump talked a lot about rightly, and the, but that goes back years. Even President Obama talked about it, and the Europeans ignored us. The reality is the Europeans can and actually are now doing a lot more for Ukraine. They have not yet met their spending commitments. It's difficult. But you know what? It's difficult for Americans. We all spend over 3% of GDP of our incomes on defense. And we have huge influx across the border. We're not securing the border. A lot of fentanyl, et cetera. So we have problems. So I think that's the way I look at the supplemental. What I would also say is people like Speaker Johnson, Congressman Garcia from California have said, what's the strategy here? What's the issue with the trade-offs? Um, how do we focus, you know, Europe doing more? And I think on the whole, the administration, as far as I can tell from people like Speaker Johnson, pretty much blew those concerns off. So you could have a supplemental that was saying, look, we heard what you said. We're going to the Europeans are going to take the bigger share of the burden because it's happening in Europe and you have other problems. You need to you know, bigger problems for you, but you're not going to abandon us. But we're going to take the big lead. Here's some more specific things we need that don't trade against China. And by the way, here's some things. In, on the border that really help address it. I mean, I think Senator Cotton was very articulate uh, about this over the weekend, Senator Rubio. I thought that was the price of the supplemental. And people say, oh, well, you know, but it's like, well, there's, you know, Senator Rubio is called an invasion. It's a pretty big deal. It's tens of millions plus of people coming into this country illegally. I think that should be addressed. And so does that mean zeroing out aid to Ukraine? Not in my view, but it means a much more focused approach. But I don't think that's the bill that has been offered. And I don't think Republicans and conservatives should be obligated to be, you know, forced into a situation where where it's zero or one. Why don't why not say, no, we're going to we suggest something different that addresses our concerns. The vast majority or excuse me, the majority of Republican voters and I think independents increasingly are increasingly skeptical of aid and they're worried about spending. So let's address those concerns. Sure. Well, so far, $113 billion um, exactly. allocated by the United States uh, to, to support uh, Ukraine. So it's not that the United States hasn't done a major a part already. Let's shift to China. You okay. uh, talked about how that should be our number one priority and focus. When you served in the Trump administration at the Department of Defense under Secretary Mattis, you made that a priority. You've in- even indicated that the Biden administration considers it a priority. So wh- where is the disconnect there? Uh, I guess a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Number one, uh, why doesn't the Biden administration put more of an, an emphasis on China? And number two, uh, why do you consider it such a threat? Well, let me address the first one first. Maybe it might be easier. I mean, I actually look at it more from um, just how powerful China is. In fact, I communicate this to the Chinese directly whenever I have the chance. The reason that I'm so worried about China is not because I dislike China, if anything to the contrary. It's because I have so much respect for China. I mean, they have, according to the Office of Naval Intelligence, over 200 times the shipbuilding capacity of the United States. I mean, they have the world's largest industrial base. So people talk about the arsenal of democracy, but that arsenal left a lot and went to China, unfortunately. So, you know, and these people are not making toy cars anymore. This is like they're operating at the forefront of technology in a lot of areas, according to a respected Australian think tank, they're ahead of us. 
So I'm, I think they're serious as a heart attack. And so I'm looking for a balance of power. People often say, oh, balance of power and realism, that's un-American. Actually, to the contrary, I really reject that. Why? The fundamental idea of the American system is the separation of powers. Nobody should be treated with too, uh, trusted with too much power. And that's the logic I take towards China. So I'm saying we need a coalition. I don't trust them just on face value when they say they don't have expansive intent. Because like James Madison said, I think, you know, no man is an angel, so you can't trust him. Okay, so you trust but verify, to, to use a, Reagan, a Reaganism. What's the problem there? I don't think there's so much uh, debate anymore that China is a massive challenge for the United States. I think the biggest problem is just walking the walk in the sense that in order to deal with something that is really on a different order of magnitude than we dealt with in a really long time. I mean, actually, China... You know, if you just look at it, the size of its economy, it's the biggest threat the United States has dealt with since the 19th century. I mean, we were much larger than the Soviet Union. The United States alone was larger than all three major Axis states. So this is – China's a roughly pure economy, you know, if you measure it, depending on how you measure it. I think the reason is it's, it's really hard because a lot of people, particularly older people and a lot of the politicians – especially on the establishment side, are from a different era. It's very hard to let go of the idea of this sort of, quote unquote, indispensable nation, or as Madeleine Albright put it, or that we see farther. And I think that that's an, almost like an intoxicating mentality for a lot of people, both Democrats and old, old sort of traditional Republican types, to give up that. They, they feel like they are somehow morally on a perch or something, and they don't want to, and they're not really capable of grappling with how much has changed. I mean, it's amazing how fast China has grown in the last 40, 50 years. It's astounding. And so if you're, I think, an old, really kind of an older person, it's very hard to often to like really take them that seriously. But I think that's incredibly irresponsible. Like I understand where it might come from, but that is not what we need. We need to understand. And that's not because I'm like lacerating or, you know, self-flagellating over America being bad. To the contrary, it's just like this is serious as a heart attack. If you run a company and you suddenly have this startup competitor that – is much more formidable. You have to change your business strategy. That's just, again, if you're going back, like I always try to come back, what's in Americans' concrete, practical, long-term interests? Enlightened interests, like not in a way, like I'm not saying we should like invade Mexico or Canada or anything. I'm just saying like what's in our long-term interests? And anything I'm saying where somebody can say, hey, Bridge, you totally are, have the wrong idea about how it serves American interests or you've got your facts wrong in a way, I'm happy to be to be corrected. But I don't think saying that we – stand farther and we're going to end evil in the world or some of this stuff is that's not going to serve Americans interests. Now, there are some who are making the case going back to the supplemental that the money that we're spending in the supplemental will be a deterrent for China, specifically because they draw the connection to Ukraine. You've been quite forceful in knocking down that argument. Can you explain to our listeners why you think that doesn't hold up? Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's like it's so convoluted. It could only be like a Washington rationalization. I mean, a couple of points. There's one variant that's like, well, China's going to be deterred by what we do in Ukraine. And it's like, well, just apply common sense. Like, is something halfway around the world what the Chinese are really looking at? Are they looking at the military balance and, you know, our resolve over, over, an issue, over the issue in Taiwan? And here's the thought experiment that I apply on that one. If China actually thought the future of Taiwan was going to be settled in Ukraine, it would intervene directly in the war. Instead, it's not doing that at all. Instead, it's sitting back, getting us to spend more money and weapons and political capital in Europe, distracting us, tying us down in Europe and the Middle East. Meanwhile, building up its own strength. 
to, you know, as Napoleon put it, if you want to take Vienna, take Vienna. The other argument that you often hear is, oh, we're going to spend a bunch of money on Ukraine. That's going to help our defense industrial base. But that also doesn't make sense because, well, why don't you just spend the money on weapons to deal with the Chinese to deter them directly? Because you can't use a weapon again. Usually, I mean, you can't use like a missile again. It's going to blow up. Right. You can't use oil. You can't, you know, aircraft get worn out, et cetera, artillery ammunition, et cetera. And so this argument that, like, we're going to invest in the defense industrial base, I do support increased investment in the defense industrial base, coupled with reforms to make it more equitable and accessible. And so it doesn't get captured by just by shareholders of the of the big primes. But like if we're giving money to Ukraine, that's not the same. And especially because a lot of these weapons will take years and years to re- to replace. Years we don't have. Admiral Sam Paparo, who was up for nomination for the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, he said, you know, the 2027 date that's often thrown around, that's just like a planning thing for the Chinese. Nobody knows. They could go tomorrow. And if we give a lot of weapons away, I mean, for instance, we're like sending air defense systems, which we know we need and we're behind on. We're sending those to Europe and the Middle East. That's that, of course, hurts us. You talked about how the Europeans need to step up and do more, particularly in, in their own uh, backyard. Uh, President Trump has been critical just recently of, of NATO. Your thoughts on, on his criticism and if it's justified? Well, look, I think President Trump was absolutely right to um, uh, urge the Europeans and put real pressure on them to increase their defense spending, uh, it, you know, when he was president and so forth. And in fact, that was the I mean, look, we've been trying to be as polite and sort of, you know, uh, nice as possible for many years. And they ignored us. Right. I mean, they ignored us. And so I think at this point, if you actually think the situation is as grave as the Europeans and many of the kind of neoconservatives say, then actually you should support a really tough measure to make it clear to the Europeans that this has to happen. Now, my personal view is the United States should uh, come to NATO's aid if NATO is attacked. However, I also have said this publicly, and I've said this to the Europeans for many years, including I had an article translated in German saying this years ago, we should only provide that level of support that is consistent with maintaining deterrence in the Pacific. So there's going to be a limit and I think this is true of a Republican administration and Democratic administration. There has got to be a limit to how much we can provide to Europe because we don't have what's called a two-war force. A two-war force basically says the American military can fight two large conflicts at the same time. We don't have that, not because we don't want to, but because we're dealing with a superpower in China that we haven't focused enough on. So when I was in the Trump administration, we shifted to say we got to get the big thing right. you got to take care of your case of acute heart disease before you address your arthritis, Right. And the Biden administration actually adopted that same fundamental approach. So their strategy is pretty much the same. But the problem is the Chinese have been moving like gangbusters, so we haven't solved the problem. So what happens if Russia moves into the Baltics? God forbid, I think we should incur- we should deter them and encourage them not to. We're going to give them what we can, but not things that we also need to defend ourselves and our forces and our allies in the first island chain. Why not? Because we like Asia more than Europe, but because Europe, Asia is more important than Europe because it's a larger economy and China's a bigger threat. We can't get that wrong. And so I think the solution to this is not to just wallow and criticize each other, but to actually for the Europeans to step up. They're totally capable of doing this. They have far larger economy than Russia. And by the way, they did this during the Cold War. They were all spending a ton more on defense. And I'm tired. Uh, I hate that term. It's so abused these days. It's really, it's not effective and it's very annoying 
for European elites, including ostensibly conservative political leaders, to come to this country and lecture and lambaste American conservatives who are saying, hey, we're spending three and a half percent of GDP on and you're not doing it. And you're telling us that it's something that's happening in your continent that's next to you. If it's so existential, why don't you just meet your commitments? And by the way, 2% is just a, a floor. Why don't you spend more? Like, so my favorite example is you had a lot of British Tories come over to this country and lecture American conservatives, you know? And it's like, okay, um, I think, you know, that's interesting. Um, then the British head of the army, General Patrick Sanders, said, oh, well, I guess we're in an existential threat from Russia, so we should maybe think about conscription here in the United Kingdom. And then the administration of Prime Minister Sunak shot him down. So it's like, oh, okay. So it's okay for American taxpayers to pay for that, but not, not it's not okay for the United Kingdom to have conscription? Or like, you know, the Germans who were laughing when President Trump was talking about Nord Stream and so forth at the UN – like, OK, like it's not personal, but like we've been saying this for a while. And if you think that Russia is such a serious threat, and by the way, I actually think the Russians are a serious threat to Eastern NATO. What the best solution, whatever you think of us or conservatives or President Trump or whatever, is for you to develop more military forces, which you're totally capable of doing. Basically, like man to man, person to person, like we're all adults here, like the party's over. Americans have been spending three and a half percent and Europeans have been spending like one to two percent. So, like, sorry, like, what planet is that a sustainable model when we have bigger problems, China, the border, fentanyl, what, you know, other things? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sticking on this topic, Tucker Carlson, of course, interviewed Vladimir Putin, a two-hour interview, covered a range of topics. (coughs) What, in your opinion, was the biggest headline coming out of that? And how much stock do we take in some of the things Putin said and what should we disregard as his propaganda? Well, I mean, he's, you know, uh, let me be clear. I think Putin's invasion of Ukraine was an evil act. I think, you know, Ukraine has a a legitimate, you know, just cause to self-defense. On the other hand, you know, the world is not a morality play. I mean, American media people were going to North Vietnam. They interviewed Saddam Hussein. I mean, there are even American media people who were interviewing Osama bin Laden before 9-11. So like, and by the way, the administration itself has said that this war is going to end through negotiations. So I think the biggest thing that came out, at least that that I could see, was that Putin at least ostensibly said that he was open to negotiations. Now, he may be disingenuous or lying, possible, but then I think it's incumbent upon the administration, this relates back to the supplemental, what's the plan for ending this war? Because I think for a long time, there's been a kind of fantastical, magical thinking sort of idea to the end of this war that like, not only that the Ukrainians are going to take back all of their territory, which looks unfortunately improbable, but more that the Russians are going to be like fundamentally changed. And I think this kind of fantastic, you've seen it from people who I thought had thought better, like Francis Fukuyama and so forth. People have gotten kind of high in their own supply where like, didn't we learn from like Iraq that you can't really fundamentally like change a culture or, you know, through just through military force, unless maybe a very specific set of conditions. And by the way, Russia is not Iraq, right? Like Russia's got thousands of nuclear weapons. It's one of the major powers of the world. Um, so, I mean, to me, what what came out, his, I don't think that his, I mean, I agreed with what sort of Tucker's reaction to his long disquisition on the history, which was like, well, yeah, a lot of countries have historical disputes. That doesn't mean you, it's okay to, to use military force. Um, so I'm not – I mean I, I think a lot of it was Russian propaganda or spinning or whatever. I don't think it was very effective at least in sort of probably changing a lot of minds in the United States that suddenly there's their cause is less unsympathetic than we thought. I don't think it's a sympathetic cause. 
On the other hand, it's not a, it's not there's no court of right and wrong here. Putin is never going to be dra- dragged in front of the ICC. So how is this war going to end? Well, there could just be could well could, it could just go on and maybe stalemate at some point. Um or it's going to end through some kind of negotiations. And you know, obviously it's best for the Ukrainians to negotiate from a position of strength. We may sadly have missed that opportunity. Um, but I think in any case, if the if the Europeans step up and support the Ukrainians more, they'll be able to negotiate from a position of strength. But I thought that was sort of probably the biggest takeaway. And I just I think a lot of the, the administration's position has been very strange because privately, when they leak to the press and so forth, they'll say this war is going to end through negotiations. But they actually never have this sort of um, fortitude to publicly present that case. So like when President Biden went to like Kiev and said, I left my heart in Kiev or says that it's a battle between democracy and autocracy, which I think is an absurd framing of the conflict. Um, it's like, uh, so when are you actually going to start negotiating? You know, like if you said it's going to start negotiating, oh, maybe they have the plan. Oh, we're not going to do reject it now. We're going to have three months of this. And then that, you know, but they sort of tried that with the counteroffensive and it didn't work. Right. So what are they going to do? Well, and it seems that increasingly the American people are expecting that articulation of what the end game is. And so we'll see if uh, reasonable if if, uh, if, if Biden uh, follows that course. I, I have my doubts. Hmm. You have talked and written about the the different factions within the Republican Party or the conservative movement more broadly when it comes to national security. And I'm wondering if you could explain uh, those three different groups as you see them uh, to our listeners. Sure. No, I think this is very helpful because I, I think it's a, the, the, the common framing of debates um, within the conservative side or the Republican side about foreign policy is, I would say, basically inaccurate and tendentious. Um, which is isolationist versus internationalist, which is just kind of ridiculous because it doesn't actually describe the real axis of of actual debate. And it also is clearly meant to uh, be negative towards people who have a more restrained view of what American foreign policy should seek to achieve. So the way that I would do is kind of along a spectrum. On one hand, you could have what I think you could think of as like primacists, which are basically people who think that the United States needs to be like the global hegemon, that like basically in order for America to be secure and the world to be sufficiently stable for our interests, America has to be so powerful and so assertive in you know our this broad conception of our interests that it almost is like pacifying the world. Now, there's sort of a liberal version of this which is, you know, George W. Bush, let's end uh, tyranny in the world or David Frum and Bill Kristol talking about ending evil. But you could have a more conservative version, you know, that say, you know, John Bolton or somebody, which is, you know, we just need to like bash anybody who might challenge us. Well, that, that's being a little unfair, but it, it, well, maybe I don't know. But like that is sort of like we need to be showing everybody who's boss everywhere at the same time. Now, the upside of this view is that I think they rightly understand that America's interests go beyond the water's edge and that we have, you know, we're 20% of global GDP. In the 19th century, we could be an isolationist country because we free rode on the British Navy, which protected us from the European powers, et cetera. The downside of this uh, view is that it's not living in reality. You know, it's like a business that's, you know, it's like Chrysler in like 1985 pretending that they don't have to worry about Honda and Toyota. The problem is, is that, you know, for the first time in 150 years, we have a peer economy and we've used our military a lot. People are tired. Our debt is at un, un, you know, huge levels. So when people say, oh, we used to spend 7% of GDP on defense, it's like, well, yeah, we were diff- we had a different debt picture, different, you know, demographic picture in terms of age, healthcare costs, et cetera. 
you know, Europe had destroyed itself. Now it's very advanced economies. And I, so I think that that view, which is heavily represented in senior members of, of Republicans in the Congress, doesn't reflect strategic reality. And of course, it doesn't reflect the voters, who I think are much more moving in the direction of the other side, which I would say restrainers. I don't like the term isolationist because I think it's unfair. Um, restrainers are those who are like, look, we got to we should just really stay out of the business of getting into other people's wars mostly worry about ourselves. These other regions will take care of themselves. What I think this side has right is let's not get in like any big Middle East wars or let's try to avoid wars if we can. Like who wants to get into wars? Like I don't – that just seems bad to me, you know, from people dying, you know, spending money, et cetera. I think the danger on that side is like – and particularly vis-a-vis China is that if you're not prepared to get into any wars, you may really lose out in very – and you might get into worse wars than you you expected. And so I think it's – you know, peace through strength is true, which is like – but it's actually peace through strength, not just as an excuse. And so where I am is is in the middle – uh, which is I would call – it's not a great term, but kind of prior, prioritizing, which is to say, look, I'm going to take the best of both sides and mitigate the downsides. So we need to be abroad in the world. We can't just expect the world to self-organize in ways that's going to be good for America. If China dominates Asia, we're all going to suffer. I'm also going to take from the other side, let's avoid getting into a large Middle East war. How can we do that? Maybe we can get the Europeans to do more. Get, they are doing more. The Japanese to do more. Taiwan to do more et cetera, and then kind of approach things in more of a business-like fashion. And I actually think this is, if you will, the primacist view in a way is most consistent with a liberal view of the world because it's basically, in a certain way, it's like you need to have what Robert Kagan, the Brookings Institution, calls a global liberal hegemony. I think conservative, and you go back to American conservatism, it's always been more like practical and not, you know, going out in search of monsters to destroy. The other – the restrainer side is actually more consistent with libertarianism because it's like if the government gets out of the pro- business of making mistakes, things will be great. I think prioritizer is more conservative in like the, in like the colloquial sense, which is you know, like, hey, we can't solve all the world's problems. Our biggest responsibilities are to ourselves, our families, our faith, our country. We're going to look to help people where we can, but it's a you know, model of stewardship. I was actually talking to somebody – I wrote something in First Things about a year – maybe a year plus ago, on the morality of my strategy. Because sometimes people say, oh, it's amoral. Americans are going to never go go with it. I actually don't think it's amoral at all. To the contrary, I think the primacist view is actually more amoral. But if you use the model of, say, from the gospel, like of stewardship, which is to say, hey, you, you have a responsibility as a foreign policy person or whatever to think about the consequences of your doing, right? And if you're thinking and, – and you need to take your core responsibilities the most seriously, how can we neglect the border, how can we neglect China, the biggest threat to it, just because we're consumed with these higher as- noble aspirations? Well, that's like the, there's a Dickens character who's like always worried about people in India or something, but never taking care of his own family. That's the sort of I don't think that's a moral approach to foreign policy. And I certainly don't think it's conservative. Thank you for articulating that. And I, I do think that uh, there are more and more people moving in, in your direction uh, as a result of wh- where, where we see things go. Uh, that brings me to my final question, which is about the, the Marathon Initiative. Yeah. Can you share with us about the organization that you run and how our listeners can either follow or support your work? 
Well, thanks very much. That's that's very kind. Um, you can follow me at uh, at Elbridge Colby on X, and I've got a book, uh, The Strategy of Denial, that came out a few years ago. Though I think it's actually more current now than when it came out. And the Marathon Initiative, uh, my partner and I started a few years ago as a nonprofit five hundred one c three small organization. But um, in a time of transition, there are exceptions like the Heritage Foundation, which are which are really moving in a reform oriented direction and willing to break China politically, intellectually, and otherwise, which I tremendously admire and support. But in the foreign policy space, we start out and say, look, we're living in an era of great power rivalry. There's no easy answers. Let's go, you know, without fear or favor to where the right strategies are. And so that's what we wanted to we wanted to do is to create a think tank in the sense what, what it was originally conceived of in the national security space, which was to think hard about the toughest problems, produce books longer, but also enable people like like me to to be able to take a more unorthodox or reformist or even heretical uh, approach that, you know, you were very kind to say that about people moving in my direction. I I think that's true, not because of eloquence of any of my arguments, but because it reflects reality. My concern is whether it's happening fast enough, because I don't think we have so much time given China and so forth. Yeah. No, well, thank you. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you for spending time with The Daily Signal today. Pleasure. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. Be sure to check out our evening show right here in this podcast feed. We help you cut through the clutter and bring you the top news at 5 p.m. each day. Also, be sure to subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. And help us reach more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again. Make it a great day or not. The choice is yours. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.